Welcome to the 1000 Experiments Club podcast. It's your guide to building a culture of experimentation. Our goal is to bring you all the lessons and insights from the leading experts so that you can shortcut your way to creating successful experimentation programs. This podcast is brought to you by AB Tasty, a solution that helps businesses improve their user experiences through experimentation, personalization, and feature management. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the 1000 Experiments Club. My name is Marilyn Montoya. I'm the VP of Marketing at AB Tasty, and I have the pleasure today to be here with Ben LeBay, who is the Managing Director of Spiro. Ben has a wide-ranging background in research and experimentation. With his focus on the customer experience, Ben has worked with B2B companies, e-commerce, online experimentation, UX, and usability research management, technical writing, and digital marketing. For those of you who don't know, Spiro is an agency and consultancy that pushes on experimentation and customer experience research programs for SaaS, e-commerce, and lead generation clients around the world. These organizations and teams have businesses and customer strategies that are then tested. Ben works with Spiro to scope research and test program strategies for companies like Procter & Gamble, ADP, Code Academy, MongoDB, and Toast, among many others. Ben, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Marilyn. It's it's uh, definitely my geek out area to talk about all things experimentation. Love to do it. I love working uh, with AB Tasty and and happy to 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 chat about some of these topics that I know we've got planned to talk about here in a sec. Yeah, for sure. And so happy to have you as well. You know, in our briefing call, we touched on so many topics. I wish we could have recorded that call uh, because there were so many interesting discussions there. And I hope, hopefully we'll be able to bring those back up again here. Before we jump into it, maybe, Ben, can you talk a little bit about how you ended up here, how you ended up in this space? I'm always so curious about everybody's individual journey to get that experimentation and optimization. Yeah, so I... I uh was in academia before jumping into marketing. I worked uh, as a staff researcher at the University of Texas here in Austin. And I was working on uh, biological and conservation research projects, doing a lot of like modeling work, helping like Department of Interior, state governments in decisions around how to spend their money, doing a lot of modeling, doing a lot of like technical data work. There's an analog there, right? Like, you know, using data to help organizations make decisions, right? So that's, that's the leap. And I had this friend, this family friend, his name was Pep Laya. He's the well-known founder and and CXL and uh, Winter and and the the agency as well. And I started working with him on what is now CXL, the learning platform courses and training on all things, digital marketing. That's where I started. At some point, a lot of the research work that we were doing wasn't doing well. Uh, the courses is what took off there. And that wasn't really what I was hired to do. And so there was a choice and it was like, hey, do you want to continue working on the courses or do you want to kind of start playing around with the agency? Because you're doing a lot of this research. And in the beginning, a lot of my bag, my my geek out area was UX research, uh, dealing with data, dealing with customer data. You know, that that area is where I'm still very much a geek in like customer research, voice of customer types of data analyses. Uh, so I started working with the agency and, and just started taking it over and now I run it. <laughs> uh, so I still work um, hands-on with a couple uh, clients. I still do business development and sales for the agency, but mostly my mind is split right now between running a couple really big programs and sure. then running the agency as its own program in, in a way, like run, you know, it's its own business. So sure. of course, do you want to share a little bit about those programs that you're you're currently running? Is it something? Yeah. So I, um, I'm, I work mostly hands-on with a big client, ADP, the payroll processor, a sure. um, very big organization. And I do a lot of really great work there. It's a, a an amazing, I've been working with that team for six years now and just, a, just, Growing and growing the program and what they do and who I work with there. That's a big one that I that I play around with. Uh, Gym Pass out of Brazil is a big program that I work with. ClickUp, the yep. program management tool, work with them in a hands-on way. MongoDB, we we built their experimentation program and now just do some light consulting. Um, that thing is running as its own machine internally, uh, but pretty pretty hands-on on that one as well. There's some other kind of smaller companies, but like e-commerce company that um, that I touch on a little bit. But the most hands-on ones these days tend to be these these kind of lead gen B2B. That that's, tends to be where I'm um, focused on right now. I cut my teeth in the beginning on e-commerce. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you know the story of native deodorant and Moise Ali. It's a very infamous story of, of in the e-commerce world. He went from zero to a hundred million dollar exit, sold to Procter and Gamble, uh, and we were with him on that journey and, and worked through the acquisition and, and a year past the purchase by Procter and Gamble of that big e-commerce company. And now he's in like Target and stuff. So I did a lot of I cut my teeth on like direct consumer, you know, e-commerce types of conversion optimization. Yeah, yeah, sure. that that kind of area. Yeah. I personally do. There's a bunch of in my team that are doing a lot of that work right now, but I'm doing a little bit. I'm not doing that as much. More of the legion, B two B, product led growth types of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a different animal, but it's interesting how you know, these concepts can apply across the board. At the end of the day, we're dealing with human behavior and people and, and purchasing decisions, right? So behavioral psychology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Let's jump right into a very interesting uh, uh, topic we talked about before. You know, you've mentioned uh, in the past this book called Built to Last by James Collins and uh, Jerry L. Porras, which talks about three different ways that company can, companies can grow. And you've told me a little bit about this book, about how they evaluated companies that were successful and their equivalent that failed and trying to you know, pull out some conclusions from there. Can you talk a little bit about how this book has inspired you and how you, you know, have maybe incorporated some of those points into your own program, into your own ideology here? Yeah, yeah. I think maybe about two years ago, I I realized, or we realized as an agency that the CRO, the practice of A-B testing is becoming a little bit more and more commoditized. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of agencies that do CRO that can stand up A-B tests. And in some ways, it's a little bit easy to do. And so I needed to reach over on the spectrum of services and reach over to try to be more consultative, more strategic in the, in the work that we do. Because as, as a business uh, you know, personal, personally, professionally, as a business, we're trying to go like up market with with who we work with, with the problems that we're trying to solve. Uh, we're trying to work with fun people and fun projects and big organizations and that kind of thing. And this book actually provides a framework to to think about doing that, to think about reaching over and being more consultative and being more strategic with helping organizations grow. So the, I'm a big into framework and you know mental models and, and and these these tools that I use personally to create a lattice work of understanding, you know how to act and make decisions in, in the world the worlds that we're doing or help others make decisions right. So yeah. it, it kind of presents this framework of like there's three way, main ways a company can grow: setting goals. Uh, this is like you know defining a mountain and and climbing it. Another one is optimization. So good enough never is. This is really like the blazing the trail up that mountain and, and what trail you take, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but then there's this big third pillar that not a lot of organizations actually take advantage of. And this is the kind of the little bit of the premise of the book. That pillar is experimentation. It's evolution. And the way that the book defines it is like evolutionary, actually, mechanisms, right? Happy yeah. accidents, trying a bunch of stuff, being okay with failure. Failure as a feature, not a bug. And so that little area right there, I realized is the difference between CRO and this other way that we can help organizations grow because CRO mm -hmm. optimization is in, is in that second bucket that I just referred to. If there's three sure. buckets, sure. it's the optimization, the good enough never is a focus yeah. on margins, yes. a focus on like, you know, squeezing the lemon kind yeah. of thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's different than like failure as a feature, not a bug. It's, it's just, it doesn't have to be different. I know there's huge overlaps, but this is a model, an imperfect model, if you will, that helps me have the conversation of like, how can I create mechanisms within an organization to be disruptive, sure. uh, to not just optimize, but to do something new, do like something completely new. new. Yeah. 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 Actually, what you're saying really uh, rings a bell with something that we had worked on at the beginning of the year called the, the, the experimentation model. And we actually segmented it out into those two bricks um, without really thinking about how, how parallel it is to what you're saying here. But we had a section where we called it experience optimization and experience innovation and experimentation or testing, if you will, in a, in a simple sense is part of both, but there is a purpose there that's different. And as you said, one is really focused on improving what's existing to make it a better version of itself. And the other one is just completely building from scratch. And you really need both in order to continue to be competitive because if you just do one, 
you're not going to be able to have the full package, you know? So I think that's interesting that it kind of, you, you know, it kind of reflected here in this, in this approach as well. Very interesting. I would stack on to what you just said there by the, the way that I handle that tactically of like, you, you can't just do one, you've got to do both. Yeah. The way that I handle that tactically is, is thinking about a portfolio management way of, of doing what you're doing, like doing experimentation. So okay. if there's a solution spectrum yeah. around like iterative, like changes that you can make to a website with optimization in mind, like not even, you're not even A-B testing, you're just making tweaks and you're making changes and you're talking to customers and you're realizing that this is better than that, or you're improving mm -hmm. layouts or you're, you're tweaking and, and you've got a punch list every month that you go to and you just ship it and your ship, what you're shipping, of course, aligns with like maybe an OKR system or something like that. Yeah. But you're just shipping little bitty tweaks uh, to the system. And then, you know, that's layer one. Uh, that's portfolio tag number one. The portfolio tag number two is these substantial types of changes. So like net new um, kind of content pieces on your website, like a whole new type of social proof that you want to see if that resonates or how that resonates a whole new product. Oh, no, that's a bigger one. That's my third one. Uh, so like, like just net new content, new user flows, for example, like a new personalization campaign. That third level is the disruptive stuff, the innovative stuff, a brand new product, a new pricing model, um, a new channel, a whole new channel, right? Something like just really big and disruptive sure. uh, and a bet that is that is that you want to learn from so the portfolio let's put 20 percent of our calories over into iterating 20 percent onto substantial and, and and you know 20 30 40 percent over on disruptive okay and that whole that framework has been really healthy to use as a tool to get teams on the same page like hey we're really under resourcing disruptive bets like i know you want velocity of work but you also want you know, quality of ideas and, and, and big needle movers, you, we can't do both if you're, if we're not resourcing it, sure. um, you, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you were not resourcing these big bets. Yeah. Um, I think what's challenging there, then what you're saying is getting companies, especially, you know, the, the organization, and it comes down to leadership to understand that need an investment in that break. I know this is kind of off topic, but there was this Netflix series that was going through kind of a scandalous industries and companies in terms of growth and all types of, I forget the name of it exactly, but one, one episode was, was specific around a pharmaceutical company that decided to kill their innovation wing and just grow through M&A until the company went kaput. Because of course, like how mm. do you drive a pharmaceutical company and growth without investing in 10, 20 year, 30 year innovation, right? That's an extreme example. But, you know, taking companies and, and, and in the culture saying, hey, guys, we, we still need to, you know, regardless of this context, we still need to allocate 30 to 40 percent of, of, of resources, energy into being disruptive. Um, how do you how do you address that, especially in these big companies that you're working with? How do you help them, you know, convince themselves that that's something they should focus on, even when, you know, obviously we have revenue pressure. They have revenue pressure in the short term. Yeah. I think, yeah, the flip side of that pharmaceutical anecdote would be like a company like 3M, yeah, uh, sure. you know, the, you know, for over a hundred years, they've allowed their scientists to be mad scientists and, and <laughs> like, and, and to create products that, you know, like back in the twenties, they're, they're, memos to you you should read some of their memos and it's like all about like experimentation and scientific um you know playing around with with thoughts and, and ideas and things like that and giving the freedom for these you know scientists to kind of to create some weird weird things and that company is just uh, built to last right that was one of the anecdotes within that book the way i mean I just talked about the, that tagging system, that portfolio system. That's the map. I mean, that's the conversation um, tool to get a company to understand, okay, you know, if you're the pharmaceutical company, this 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 portfolio of disruptive ideas over here, we're not going to resource this. Sure. And, and, and so having that tool as the map, when we run, you know, we've got a client like this big um, uh, e-com uh, retailer out of um, Australia, um, Adore Beauty. And we're running, let's say 10 tests a month for them. And we're tagging them as iter iterative. Each A-B test is tagged with the system, iterative, substantial, or disruptive. Mm -hmm. And then we, so we literally have some portfolio graphs of like this last month, 
this last quarter, this last year, X amount of tests were iterative, X amount were substantial and X amount were disruptive. And, and that allows us to have the conversation and be honest with ourselves and not get in the rut, right? So it's easy to get in the rut. So say you're like, you're, you're playing with onboarding for six months. Well, do you stay on onboarding or do you get out of the rut or do you, you know, like that tool of tagging is the tactical little lever to have that conversation and be on the same page. So you make sure that you're not like in those testing ruts. Um, yeah. There's some also, there are some ways that we're experimenting structurally with our programs to think about how to run meetings even and have that conversation. So uh, I think in meetings, we all like to complain about meetings and the the main fault of a meeting is that one person starts to dominate it and around a solution conversation like there's a focus bias we have like behavioral psychology principle of a focus bias like what what's what we're thinking about now what we're focusing on now that's all we can think about and so if a ceo comes in or a hippo comes in or somebody just has like a pain point the squeaky wheel you know gets the gets the oil kind of thing and, and a yeah. meeting d devolves into that subject so what we started to do in our experimentation meeting rituals and is to separate issues from solutions. Sure. And so if you go through pipelines of work, if you go through project lists, all you're doing is documenting issues. You're not getting into solutions. So you're allowed to document and name the issue, but not get into the solution. And, and the second half of the meeting, uh, you're looking at a big grouping of issues, um, blockers, um, problems, uh, things that are holding back the program. And then you start to group them and prioritize and realize that these three issues are actually the same Related. one. Symptoms, sure. right? And then you tag in the right people and everything like that. So that small thing is actually incredibly changed and, and our meetings and, and made them in like 10x more productive and allowed the conversations to happen to where you're like, we're not innovating enough over here. Uh, this is actually our priority. And what we do, we, we pair up that with like a scorecarding and a metric perspective. And then, then boom, it's, it's, it, those are the little ingredients for addressing your question there. I think. Yeah. I think what, what you're saying is, is, is pretty amazing. Cause you can see just with that example, how frameworks and just re reorganizing your approach, like, you know, challenging your process can completely add this whole new energy and this whole new outcome to the way that, you know, we do things. And I think that's, that's kind of the mantra of optimization, experimentation, or changing a culture internally, or being data-driven is that forcing yourself out of this, okay, we go into a meeting, the hippo comes in, he talks about a problem, we go right into the solutions, and like, what did we do with our time? I think that's interesting to just, you know, being able to call out that example to show us that on a daily basis, we can actually reframe everything and be more, more optimized in our approaches. So can you imagine what we can do? And we're doing, applying that a business and the way we go about um, structuring and creating growth. Um, I think it, it's it's really interesting. Um, we've talked before a little bit about the parallel to DevOps culture. Can yeah. you um, can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, but I think, I mean, yeah, totally. So the um, what I just referred to around those meetings, for example, like the hippo coming in and the focus bias, and those types of elements that, that um, those cultures that are very autocratic and, and founder driven, founder CEO driven cannot have elements of like uh, psychological safety or uh, customer centricity and, and things like that. I think the DevOps movement most clearly kind of delineated in books like um, the Unicorn Project and the Phoenix Project and, and these books that were derivative of, of this seminal book called The Goal which is a story of like Toyota and the lean manufacturing movement and what it did, sort of a fictionalized business book. But they, there's a lot of parallels in terms of what our industry, what the A-B testing industry is reaching for when we talk about like culture of experimentation and being data-driven and things like that. And so this, this brings in the elements of the DevOps cultural movement, um, these these pillars of uh, psychological safety, customer centricity, uh, things like that. So I'm really fascinated by this area and it's, it's an area that's like, I don't know, dangerously distracting <laughs> in a way, like, like, like you, you, you made the, um, 
leap of like, yeah, we we're, we live in this A-B testing world, but it could also apply to like business operations generally, right? Completely. <laughs> and so that's why I say dangerously distracting is because it's like, well, as from a from an agency consultancy ownership perspective, like, what do I want to sell? <laughs> do I sell like, like, am I going to make you more money through tests? Or am I going to make you more money through changing the way your business works? I totally different like oh, business yeah. propositions. One of yeah. them is one of them is like a com that commodity CRO. Yeah. And one of them is like what McKinsey has been selling for. Oh, you yeah. know, it's like a you different need a rebrand, though. <laughs> yeah, it's a different realm of work. <laughs> yeah. But I, I but I think that the the ideas of like changing the way you run meetings, changing the way that you're using data to to make a decision, it's all around process, right? Sure, it is. And that's yeah. not that's not really sexy. So yeah. like what, what's sexy is that I'm going to make you a million dollars by changing your, your pricing page. Yeah. Uh, right. Like <laughs> that's true. sexy. And that's yeah. like what traditionally CRO companies, testing tools sell. Like I'm yeah. going to, yeah. I'm going to make you money. Sure. But what if, what if I come to you with a value proposition and I've started doing this, what if, what if I come to you as a business and be like, Hey, I want to um, work with your marketing team and with your same headcount of people. I want to help your marketing team ship twice as much wow. with your same headcount. Yeah. How does that value prop sound? Yeah. Like that's attractive. That's sexy. Yeah. Now, the how am I going to do it is not sexy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's when you get into the nuts and bolts and it's like, oof. Yeah. Um, I, I really, I see exactly what you're saying. I think it, um, when we think about CRO and experimentation, and we'll get into this a little bit, a little bit later about the tooling and 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 the process and the people and the culture. Um, a lot of this is about the process and the culture uh, and the ways of, of of making decisions. And the tooling is just kind of, you know, a, a detail. I mean, I, I hate to minimize it to that extreme. It's important, but. A lot of this is about the process, understanding what you're working with, understanding what the problems are, understanding what you want to achieve, um, setting those goals, looking at how you can rethink about the problem in a different way so you can approach it in a different way, you know, rethinking the roles of the individuals involved in those projects. So the, the leadership, the management, what, what should their role be? If it's not being hippos, then what is it, you know? And so um, I think that... Uh, there's a big gap in the market today between that reality that's, you know, process and thinking that, okay, with, you know, just running a couple of tests on your website, you're going to, you know, be forever efficient and optimize and make a ton of money. I mean, I think that there are definitely tests and best practices and things you can implement to get started, but the real road to, to being an optimized you know, have an optimization culture, I guess, is uh, and an and experimentation culture, I think, is really about changing everything, you know, about the way you make decisions. And so I think that I understand your the, you know, the <laughs> the huge temptation it is to start looking at all these other places where we know it's not optimized, like we know Zoom calls and, and meeting Google Meets are not optimized. We know that maybe, you know, the, the go to market approaches for companies aren't always optimized. So, yeah, I, I really I really like this parallel. And I think the as you said, DevOps culture, it's interesting. It's like a, it's almost like the um, this the culture coming from product development also and and agile all of that is infiltrating itself into these other parts of you know the company which i think is a great thing you know uh, being continuously delivering um you know like having you know this iterative approach to to releasing and so on i think all of that is is kind of influencing you know marketing and business and sales and um, processes yeah, I, I would jump in there and, and say that, I, I don't know, my mind goes to the, the this idea of it's a language game and, and these, you know, the DevOps or the Agile or Scrum or or yeah. experimentation cultures type of stuff. The, the, the whole idea like is to optimize the efficiency of a team, of a big team working together. When it comes to feature releases, you don't want to leave any room for error. Flagship by AB Tasty delivers product optimization capabilities that enable continuous deployment without risk. With Flagship, you can experiment at scale by personalizing and deploying thousands of times per year to meet ever-growing customer expectations. 
Listeners of this podcast can benefit from a free 30-day trial by visiting flagship.io. So sign up today and discover why engineers and product teams use Flagship to release fearlessly. Well, you know, Spiro has a, um, we found success in working with these, what I call these hyper-growth startups, these, these organizations like, like we work with Miro and MongoDB and Toast and OutSystems and ServiceNow, these, these Procore, these, these companies that are growing really quite rapidly and they're like series like C, D, E, or they're about to go public. And, and we've, we've worked with a lot of clients that are doing that. And what, what happens there is that as you grow so rapidly, you have this like management team that at one point are really close to the problem and really close to the customer. But as you grow quickly, it's their job not to be close to the problem and customer anymore. They have to hire people and create systems for those people to get close to the customer. And where you see all of this top, we're dancing around all of these terminologies of like of these operating frameworks like agile or DevOps and stuff like that. Those are all sets of language that the companies need to commit to. It doesn't matter which one you pick, you pick, yeah. you just got to commit. commit. And, and like, there's a set of language, let's commit to it. And experimentation itself is using the language of science, right? Like commit or the not. Scientific like method. Yeah. Right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so you, you got to commit to that, to that language. You got to commit to the team and, and, and these, these, as the company grows, that leadership, again, to, to, to kind of reiterate myself, they got to create those systems for the people that are close to the customer to make decisions on their own. Um, and, and so that you go away from the top-down decision-making and you go towards the, the people, the product owners, the marketers on oh, the front lines, yeah. you're, yeah. you're creating systems and tools so they make decisions on their own. Uh, and they can be driven by the data instead of the plan. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So that's mm -hmm. a little weird one. That's where, like, in my mind, like, I love the concept of the plan as the enemy. Um, and, and it's just it's like weird to think about. It's like, we all have plans. Like every marketing department has a plan. So if I, if I bring that concept as the plan as the enemy, the opposite is a data-driven culture of the plan. The opposite of a plan is a data-driven culture. Wow. Yeah. I had this discussion before in the past about product teams getting rid of product roadmaps. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like yeah. not the, the yearly budget stuff. And uh, the, you know, I, I like a quarter. We, we, we work on quarters uh, with our clients, with ourselves, sure. with yeah. everything. We just work on quarters and, and we don't like the yearly planning is more of like yearly bonding. <laughs> and it's not really like, planning for the whole year it's just like you know we know we're gonna have some quarters um yeah okay so if we Ben, if we go back a little bit to you know how companies grow and we one of the those pillars we were talking about was about setting goals right we have to set goals for optimization for experimentation and you've talked about this uh, with relation to okrs and just shipping or doing something can you discuss a little bit about that in detail about what will you set up as an OKR and how do you, how do you align that with just sh with shipping? Yeah. 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 Great question. Actually, like what I said there at the end about we work on quarters, like we work with quarters with ourselves and our clients. Um, that's the sort of good transition question. And, and it actually, I think that it speaks to the bit of the secret sauce that, that our agency has, and it's not, we're not trying to keep it secret. I publish a ton on this. So I'm going to answer your question, but I'm going to back up a little bit and then come back to it. So hopefully okay. I don't ramble too much on it. But <laughs> like when, like every CRO company has to do research to understand what to test. And, and you know, when you stand up an A-B test, when you stand up a personalization campaign, you have to feed that initiative, that campaign with good ingredients. And the ingredients, you know, the, the quality of the hypothesis, the quality of the question will come from the insights gathered from uh, talking to customers or talking to business owners about the opportunity or the new strategy that the business is taking. Um, so looking at analytics, doing user testing, uh, surveying customers, doing polls, doing research, right? So every 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 agency, every in-house company, we have research arms, we do research, we collect data, we have information, we get insights, okay? But you can't stop there. And that's where most people stop is they just gather insights and then you test on insights. But the key is to not stop there. 
Uh, so remember your, your question is, is around like OKRs and, and, and like quarters and stuff like that. So what we love to do with our strategic services is not only get to the insight stage, but do a thematic analysis on the insights themselves. Meaning that if we've got like, we do a bunch of activities, a bunch of data diving, we're looking at behavioral types of data, attitudinal types of data, and we get it from various sources. I, I just reeled off a few, a bunch of them. Data and information come in. We've got an, a bunch of insights like this page is underperforming. You know, users are confused about pricing over here. You know, this social proof just just doesn't get resonated and gets skipped over. You know, just all sorts of weird little insights that might be triangulated from all the data sources. If you've got 30, 40 insights, look for themes in the insights. Uh, for themes around like product discovery, people aren't finding what they're looking for. Trust and uncertainty. People don't trust or understand your offer or something like that. Messaging, in terms of understanding offer, like messaging and value proposition can be a theme. But the themes, these insight themes are derivative of the data. They're not set top down. They're from the customer data itself. Well, if you marry that with the business priority, if you, if you pair that with where the company is growing, like the growth model of the company. You think take AB, AB Tasty, for example. AB Tasty has plans to grow 20% over this next year, for example. I don't know. But you have plans of 20% and you have sort of a, some gambles and bets on how you're going to do that. We're going to do that with this channel and with this set of uh, podcasts and with this kind of thing. So if you pair industry customer data, your customer data with your priorities and your growth model, the Venn diagram there, the overlap is your strategy for how you're, what you're going to do. Sure. And it speaks to an OKR system. How might we grow 20% in, with this, the XYZ mechanisms? Well, here's a punch list of insights uh, that map back to that explicitly sure. and tie into a database of your goal tree maps. And so you have smart goals that you can create out of it. So there's your OKR ingredients, your objective. You've okay. got key results. So those are the initiatives around those insights that you might yeah. punch list. And yeah. then you're tying it to go to explicit metrics within um, each relative to each of those thematic categories of insights. Yeah. yeah. So um, when you're doing that, so if I, I can paraphrase a bit, so you, you go through that insights gathering, that analysis, but what seems to be this very important step that you're, that you're referring to is look at the data and try to pick out patterns like to group them in these themes and then see how you can map that to what your goal is. Because if your goal is we want to increase, let's just say, I don't know, it depends on your company, your business model, what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to achieve more subscribers? Are you trying to just bottom line results? Um, you know, your e-commerce website, you want to, is one of your goals reducing balance rate? I don't know. Or is it, or is it having a longer browse time. You Maybe your browse time is two, three minutes and you want to increase it to five minutes. You know, And so I think what's interesting is what you're saying, okay, take a look at the insights, try to group them together so that you can, you can understand what the underlying kind of weaknesses or strengths are, I guess. And then how does that map up to your OKRs? Because I guess it, it's logical that imagine you set up all these OKRs, but they have nothing to do with where you're optimizing, or they're kind of far away from that objective. So they're kind of further down the line, your impact on that OKR is going to be very marginal. So it's actually really interesting because it's like, it's, it sounds obvious, but I don't think that we always think about it that way. Yeah. And, that, and it's very rare that an organization and a company that we work with, I see like a proper goal tree map for the organization. So your goals are usually not so tactical as like bounce rate and stuff like that. They're usually around like either revenue or customer or process uh, types of like goal, lag, lag, they're lagging metric types of goals. Those are your objectives are usually around lagging metrics, yeah. but you have to map it to like the leading metrics. You have to have a goal tree map. So this is the organizations don't do that. They don't have they a goal don't. tree map. They don't have they a have metric it. map. Uh, of how things cascade down. So you, you you create a metric map over here, you create your sort of OKRs and then you connect them and then your goals are smart. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, it's that, that mapping. And yeah, it's, I, I was thinking bounce rate, but you're right. That wouldn't be, that would be the goal. The goal would be like, how do we increase our revenue from X to Z, you know? Yeah. So what, <laughs> To get to, to sort of reiterate and to get kind of tactical, like when we yeah. set up a test program, We'll go through this exercise uh, to create 
these OKR, what we call these cards. It's one, a one slider that summarizes a lot of really cool information, uh, but sets the strategic roadmap for a particular theme area. Let's say like um, content discovery, especially for e-commerce, this is a big one. How might we improve content discovery on, on this particular journey, maybe for a particular channel? Well, over this next quarter, we're going to run these eight tests. And these eight tests are specific to these actual issues that we found that were triangulated through the data that we, that for the research that we did. We're going to do these eight tests. We're going to do, we're going to deal with this punch list of, of things. And then we've got these like two strategic projects of additional research or additional investigation that we're going to do as well. So that's our key results over the next quarter to affect the objective of improving content discovery that we know is a big theme for our customers. So that's a that's a testing roadmap that we're going to execute over the quarter. And at the end of the quarter, you have a set of metrics that you're looking to to move and so you're looking at the needles move. So you at the end of the quarter that you're your quarterly readout is like just a no-brainer. It's just auto-created in a way. You ran those tests. You got the scorecard of your metrics. How did you do? And then that's it. And then you just, uh, consistency. And usually you've got three or four of those pipelines uh, running at the same time. So you've run this on a quarterly basis. Would you extend that to another quarter? Or do you just sort of re-hit, like you start from scratch or you like look at another set of, of data insights after a quarter, it just does it depend on the company or on the project? Like, how do you, what do you recommend in terms of like hitting, like going back to the data and rehashing out the whole Yeah, thing? usually that bigger initiative to set those cards happens. We recommend it once a year. And this is for like working with like kind of one core team, one core product team, right? So sure. you can sort of stamp this out if you're, if you're going to multiple products, right? You know, usually you're doing one big bout of initial, like once a year on that. And then, like quarter by quarter, you might be dropping some. So for example, like there'll be, there's a big focus on onboarding, right? For like sure. six months. And then we're like, okay, let's pause on onboarding and let, let's think about landing pages for a while, a little bit more top of the funnel. So like there might be a shift of focus of that, of that product team, or maybe there's just your organization is big enough to where there's a product team on onboarding and there's a product team on landing page. And, and like, you know, so it depends on the organization on yeah. like how you might you pivot. Or, yeah. or how you might double down and get deeper. Like with Code Academy, we worked with them for a long time, for example, and spent like a year and a half on checkout, like just just on checkout, just on like plan mix shift, uh, efficiencies there, you know, just just dedicated just on that one step. So, one year and a half on checkout. You found yeah. many areas of exploration there. Yeah, but there's a lot, there's a lot there. There's a lot of anchoring on pricing page on price packages stuff. There's eventually gotten getting rid of like the uh, six month plan option, just having monthly or annual, a, a lot of like personalization of like you were exploring these plans. And yeah. so the benefits of your annual package have to do with the expected results, considering that you want to be a web developer versus like a computer, like a, a computer science, you know, geek over here. Yeah. So you know, like the personalization sides of stuff in checkout uh, to hammer stuff home and things like that. Yeah. Wow. So you like deconstructed what people were actually looking for to figure out what the best thing was to offer them basically. But that took a lot of iteration, I bet. And a lot of, yeah. and also, I mean, there too, we were doing bigger like business model type of experimentation on like credit card upfront trial model versus freemium versus, I mean, like big business model questions and cohorting and things like that. So oh, wow, that, sure. yeah. That's a, that's a hardcore PLG stuff right there. Yeah. <laughs> Nuts and bolts there of PLG. Awesome. Now I want to kind of take us to a, a point that you brought up also in the past. And I don't know if, you know, how you want to tie this back to what we've been talking about, but you've mentioned game theory. How, how do we, how do you see game theory in all of this? Cause that's, that's something I haven't, you know, touched on at all in any of my conversations. Really curious, Ben, how do you, how do you tie yeah, that? Yeah. Um, so I'll tie this back to the question that you asked around, like how to, how do you get a team to maybe think more disruptive or, or think about innovation or not at least drop it or, or, or like sort of that change management topic. Okay. Because in that topic, you've got these, you know, what you might say of these cultures of the hippo cultures or, or these autocratic cultures, you've got top-down management, you've got 
uh, the lack of the psychological safety, the lack of the ability to to fail. Uh, failure is a feature, not a bug, right? So in, in that realm of the topic, we, we touched on a lot of that earlier. I see game theory coming in as working well with experimentation in the sense that there's some elements of game theory acknowledging sort of luck and chance in the element of like, we're a big team making decisions. We're not trying to solve, you know, cure cancer over here. We're, we're, we're trying to make business decisions. We're using statistics to, um, to help lean us into decisions and we're taking bets. And, and I think that the bet taking mentality can be not just like a gamification thing, Mm -hmm. but like a, tool to help be more, um, I don't know, psychologically safe in in how we're dealing with the conversation of if to test something, if to be disruptive, if we want to um, implement what decision making, right? So the the analog here is like in the scientific community, there's there's brilliant research around if you get a scientist to make a bet and, and quantify that bet on if their research is going to be repeatable, Mm-hmm. then it'll be more likely to be repeatable. So if they know ahead of time that they're going to have to place like a numeric bet, like not not even monetary or there's not a lot of skin in the game. It's just the act of making a bet and what what probability they think that it would be repeatable. Just yeah. the fact that they're putting a number on paper yeah. actually makes them conduct the research where it's that much more repeatable. And so when we, it all ties back to confirmation bias. Sure, Using sure. data to prove what we think is right. And, and this is rampant in the experimentation world, right? sure. like, like product owners are using experimentation to prove what they think is right, as sure. opposed to this like exploratory tool that science can be in this observatory, like science is, is a tool for observation, right? Sure. It's not a tool for confirmation as in, in the explicit sense. So, yeah. so yeah, so I think in a, in a testing program, we've played around with like, what test do you think will win? Like yeah. this landing page versus that landing page? Sure, sure, we do it too all the time. Like A and B, which one do you think won? <laughs> well, what if you put bets? Like yeah. uh, like I bet, like, and you give yourself credits, you give yourself tokens, you give yourself chips, uh, you give yourself taco points, you give yourself whatever that might be. Yeah. Well, you place bets. Uh, and so not just A versus B, but if you give yourself some kind of currency in there that allows you to take bets, especially the test owners, there's a prioritization system in there as well. Yeah. So I, this is where I think that game theory is acknowledges that we're not playing chess, we're playing poker. And so there's elements of chance, there's, there's elements of human psychology. And I think that the, the test itself is chess, but the yeah. decision-making process is poker it's when poker. it comes to organizations and how, how we're letting stuff get through the door, how we're letting stuff get tested or not get tested. Yeah. Like I want to, I want to disrupt this page. I want to do this, but, but dev says no, or design says no. A lot of times, like it's not up to design standards or it's not perfect. These organizations, these team members are using perfect as a shield against change because yeah. it trespasses on their territory or it like, you know, things like that. They're using it as a shield. So game theory is a betting system that it just acknowledges that weird psychological aspect. Ah, um, okay, I see. So what would so what would you recommend? Like, let's say, okay, let's take that example because I, I think that's interesting. So let's say, okay, we have the UX and the dev team, and I want to make a change to that product page. I want to test that product page, and the, the proposition of the change is something that I have a ton of pushback against. So I ask them, yeah. how much do you bet? <laughs> That so, <laughs> that the, you that your outcome will be correct <laughs> if yeah. I change. <laughs> so I I think um you know I mentioned this to you in our pre call and like yeah. I I don't have a lot of practice in, in seeing this out. No, there's a lot of programs I work with that have like systems of like what test do you think will win, sure. and there's like everyone votes. It's a voting thing. It's not a betting thing. It's just a voting thing. A voting thing, sure. So what? So I don't have uh, examples of of the sure. betting situation, but this is what I want to play with. I want to instead of the voting thing, giving people credits and 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 like um, it's uh, interesting what you're tr- saying. Trump cards in a way. Yeah. Like, no, 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 I'm putting all my chips in on this one. Like, like, uh, like this is it. Yeah. And you can't trump me. Like, it, what's interesting, it's like almost saying like, okay, like 
how, yeah, how much are you willing to bet? Like I'm putting all my chips in here. How, how, how many chips are you willing to put to, Against to, fight my... me, to fight me on this? And if you're, if you have less chips than I, then maybe you should give me a chance, you know, because that exactly. means, so you may not have as much confidence on your conviction than I do. So give and me And if my I chance. win, I, I take your chips. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's an interesting uh, process for making decisions when people don't agree. Also, I think it, I think that's funny. Like, how many chips? Like, I've got ten chips. Do you put ten chips or do you put five? <laughs> it's not just interesting. It's like scientifically um, proven to yeah. work. So it's it's there's a lot of science on this this idea of bet taking. I mentioned the one study around scientists and and making repeatable studies. There's all sorts of cool studies with like legislative legislators, and I can't remember some of the anecdotes, but this idea of like applying game theory to like group of work, there's a deep field. There's a lot of work there. I think that the experimentation industry would would grab onto it real quickly yeah, if we knew, I really if we knew like more, this. more about it. There's <laughs> a book where I'm getting a lot of these ideas and, and, and theories from. It's called Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And it's a short book. It's great. It's probably it's short, but maybe even too long for what it needs to be. But it's it, you can read through it really quick. It goes into a lot of cool behavioral psychology. You know, it brings up like Daniel Kahneman. It brings up the history of the merging of like economics and psychology. But she, Annie Duke was a twenty year poker world champion. So so it comes from that world of like poker bet taking and things like that. But in the end, the, the second half of the book is all about how do groups of people work together to make better decisions faster. So thinking in bets, making decisions with limited data. That's the subtitle of the book, making decisions with limited data. Like it's, it's perfect for us in our industry, I think. I love it. I think I have some real practical, real world situations where I can apply this myself. So I'll get back to you, Ben. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's great. Switching gears a bit, you know, we've been talking been talking about frameworks, right? So game theory and the pillars of successful companies. And we talked very specifically about mapping OKRs and, and goals. Can we talk a little bit generally about frameworks that support this industry? So, you know, we've been talking a bit about creating an operating system for businesses to experiment. Can you elaborate a bit on this, on this point? Yeah. So I said earlier too, like the, the CRO industry has gotten commoditized. Our main value prop is like, we're going to stand up a test and make you a ton of money. In fact, that used to be our, our H1 our, and our hero and on our agency's website, we will make you a ton of money. <laughs> it used to be our value prop. And that's like the main value prop of, of testing, um, at least like the core of it. And, but the second one that, that where we're putting a lot of focus on is this, this whole idea of like efficiency in the way groups of teams work. So the programmatic side of it, let's not only make you a bunch of money with this one test, let's run a bunch of tests. So how do you run a bunch of tests? Well, you focus on the program, you focus on the flywheel, you focus on the the components of that and getting the right people in the right seat and getting the right uh, guardrail metrics there and um, understanding your, your, your tools and how that they are supporting you. Um, thinking about the culture and leadership and how that is supportive. So these are the programmatic sides. And this is where I think Spiro has, over the last two years, put a lot of calories in helping organizations. This is how we get sticky with our clients about being really good at program management and, and speeding up that flywheel. So the frameworks, we call them blueprints. We've got a big um, resource section on our website with a bunch of these what, what we call experimentation blueprints, these frameworks for decision-making. So how do I organize my team structure? What is my like meeting cadence with the team? Like how, what is my data model for how I'm bringing in insights to inspire the testing roadmap? That, that the OKR style testing roadmap uh, is a blueprint, but down to tactical things like sessions versus user analytic. How do you cut and slice there? So these frameworks are how we're putting out a, how we're structuring our content and putting it out there for the industry to hopefully kind of leverage them up with it. So, yeah. That's really great. Um, I think a lot of those listening in our audience would really, really appreciate that kind of content. So uh, where can they find these kind of blueprints? Is it something that they can access on, on your website or it's a part of the services that your, your company is offering? 
No, so we're publishing them all. If you go to spiro.com slash blueprints, you'll find them or just go to spiro.com and look at resources and you'll you'll kind of like uh, stumble your way there. Uh, there's a hub, a website where we've published them. Or they're also all, if you go if you go to them, you'll realize that each one is a, like an iframe into a Figma file. And so th through that hub site, you can actually go into and copy the Figma file and have that for yourself and adapt it and change it uh, for, for yourself. And we've got kind of a Figma um, profile and community and we're, we're kind of connected over there. Nice. And we're starting to enrich that more and more and attach like templates. So all the blueprints are ungated. They're just available to grab and pluck. But we're going to add templates like versions, like mirror board sheets, stocks to all of those blueprints. Those we're going to gate. So we're going to have like two levels of it. And this is our, our content strategy there. But we're going to start to enrich a lot of our blueprints with, with uh, workable templates for, for organizations to use. Yeah, I think this is really great because, you know, a lot of the times, especially when we're discussing in, in these kind of podcasts, like we're very stratospheric and that's good too. We need some thought leadership. But I think what's also so helpful is that kind of those kind of concrete actionable frameworks frameworks are so important i'm a big fan of frameworks as well because i think it just helps structure your thinking and your process because a lot of it is process at the end of the day and with experimentation especially if you're just you know you're building out a program or you're already building a pro you already have a program in place and you want to kind of want to see whether you're you're approaching it the right way, or are you missing something, or can you optimize your program? I think looking at these frameworks can inspire people into, okay, hey, actually, I should switch this around a bit, or maybe I should change the process, or maybe I should be looking at these types of metrics or setting up goals in this way. And I think it's quite helpful because this is a space where there's just so much information out there, Ben, but at the same time, it just I think people get lost. Like, where do we begin? Where do we start? What, what, what's reliable? And what is adapted to me as a business, as a team of X size, of X you know, revenue, of X visitors, and et cetera? I think each business, whether you're B2B or you're PLG or you're e-commerce, you have these specificities. And not every playbook applies, you know, I think, I think that's, what's interesting and being able to dig through and see, okay, like this is a framework for this, this is a framework for that. I think a lot of our users really would visitors would really appreciate as well. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch there and I like it because it's to peruse through because there might be questions that make you realize there's problems that you have that you don't even know you have. Like there's a lot of like, you don't know yeah. what you don't know. And so yeah. as you peruse through, you're like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't even know, you know, should you even run an A-B test? We've got a framework for that. Like framework for how to engage your company organization culture within your, your, your program. You know, the cadence for experimentation meetings, like there's a whole, there's just a structure, like a playbook for how to run your meetings. You know, maybe, maybe that's interesting. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. No, a lot of a lot of interesting frameworks there. And um, unfortunately, I think we've run out of time, not able to cover everything. But um, I think this has been a, a really insightful session. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been a pleasure to uh, discuss with you and, and, and go into all these different uh, topics. For everyone out there, please don't hesitate to reach out to Ben LeBay on LinkedIn, to reach out uh, to Spiro. Uh, Spiro.com. Uh, go visit the website, go check out those blueprints, um, those frameworks, um, really, really helpful. And again, thank you everyone for listening. Please check out our any of our other episodes. And again, until next time. Thank you. And there you have it. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If you're looking for more insights on experimentation, be sure to subscribe to the 1000 Experiments Club wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next time.